off and get to know one another. We're talking through Scripture from front to back, and we're up to the book of Ruth. Fascinating book. Why on earth is Ruth there? Well, let me start with this question, because Ruth, Ruth is a definite break in the narrative. It's a definite break in the trend, in the way that the, the whole meta-narrative, the umbrella's been going through. I wonder, because this message, if you've had a life where nothing's gone wrong for you, uh, if you haven't made mistakes and gone off track, um, if you don't have any regrets in your life at all, coffee's out there now, you might as well just feel free because I've got nothing for you, okay? But for, but for the rest, or maybe you could stay and, and pray um, because there, there will be people here as there was in the first service. I, I wondered why the Lord led me down this track to preach on the theme that I had, but I, I guess I, I found out after the service. But the, the themes that we're going to dig into here touch very close to home for pretty much all of us, particularly if you feel like your life's gone off track, um, if you have a sense or you've experienced at some point through your life that, that horrible feeling where you feel like life's just been blown off track uh, or it's blown you off track, uh, if you feel like you've gone down a certain path too far and there's no coming back from that in one piece, there's no sort of rewiring your life. You know, sometimes it's like the whole thing's now it's hardwired, now I can't unravel this thing. It's a ball of string and there's no coming back. Uh, you might have a family mess that, you know, you feel like it can't be unraveled. It's just too late to hit a reset button. The other day, most of us have experienced that in some form. Some, some we feel like, no, this is my life now. And, and, and we need to understand that in some ways, yes, in some ways, no. And how do, we, how do we work redemption through that? Because this is essentially the story of the book of Ruth. This is a story that, that breaks out of this continual theme that's been going through now for 330 years of big picture stuff, big personalities, Deborah, Gideon, Samson, temples falling, people being crushed, hundreds of thousands dying. Now we're coming down, now we're zooming in on a, on a life of a person just like you, a real person who's going through a life under, under oppression, under circumstances that don't make sense. And we see that that God doesn't always wipe away the ramifications of our life, the things that have gone wrong, the decisions. He doesn't dissolve all the memories. He doesn't fix relationships that are irreconcilable, and some of them are. A happy ending for our life isn't always that a relationship gets reconciled. Some of them are better left. Just leave it. And we need to reconcile our own heart more than anything else. He doesn't rewind your life back to before it all happened. That's not what redemption looks like. In fact, he does... Quite the opposite. He gets all of your life, all of that mess, all those wrong things that happened, the whole thing. He says, I want to redeem the whole lot. I want to make something out of that that's unique, that can't be made any other way, that tells a story that would not make sense or have credibility any other way. I want to take your broken life and show the world what it looks like to be put back together and get back on track and come on home. And he puts a hand on all of that and he makes something out of it. He creates a pathway home for you where he promises to walk with you. And so we, when we look at that lens with the book of Ruth, it, we can see it's not included in Scripture because we needed a romance novel. It wasn't a Mills and Boom, let's break the, the tempo thing here. It's a, it's a story of redemption. It's, it's a, he's telling a granular story within this bigger narrative. He's saying, let's, let's just put a magnifying glass here and see how this is all working out for real people on the land and how God wants to interact because the picture of God from the book of Judges and and the Torah before that, and the, and the Pentateuch can be, God's up there, he's angry all the time. 
He's just waiting for us to go wrong so he can stamp us out again and we can get this wrong picture. So he zooms us in and says, let me show you what this life looks like and how I can redeem very difficult situations. And so throughout Scripture, we, we have this big word, anthropomorphisms. He anthropomorphically tells a story. He uses humanity, human lives. So we have terms like the hand of God, or he uses pictures like marriage to symbolize and represent what he's doing. And so right now he does that. He gets a human touch on this whole story that we've been looking at, the end of the small picture. And he shows this permeating heart through, that's never changed, of redemption and the power of love. His love for us and, and our love, if I can be really candid about this, it's our love for another person, for all of us. I'm not talking about male and female because it's a type of something bigger than that. It's saying this thing matters, this thing matters, this, this kingdom community, this is how it's supposed to look, that I'm here for you and, and I need you to be here for me. And if we're just turning up on Sunday and walking away, we've completely missed the point, completely consumerist church, isolationism, individualism, it doesn't work with this word. And we've got to let this thing break us in some ways and say, my life actually needs to be radically different. I can't just drive home and put the garage door down and lock myself away. I've done my Sunday bit. We've got to recognise this life is fundamentally different, this kingdom life. This is the story of Ruth. So I want to pick it up in verse 1, where it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, so a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while, so it was supposed to be a short trip, in the country of Moab. And so we see Elimelech was his name and, and his wife was Naomi. And they had two sons and they made a questionable decision, at best it's questionable, we don't know the full detail, but they made the call to leave Bethlehem. Now, what we need to understand through this whole book of Ruth is it's, it's inserted there in, the type, in, in types and shadows. It's representing, so much of it represents the grander narrative of us with God. That's the point of it. It's, again, it's not, a, it's not a romance model for us. It's a, it's a story here that connects judges. It lands judges. And so it's full of symbology. And, and so Bethlehem, which meant the place of bread... That the story here is saying they were living in the place of bread, the provision of God, and they figured it's gone dry here, I need to go somewhere else. And so they've left that place just for a little while to say, well, God's not meeting my needs. So this is where it, straight away it centers down to your heart. You may be 25 years old and go, well, look, God's not meeting my needs. There's stuff that I need. I know I should be in with his people and I know I should be a person of faith, but I'm just going to slip outside of that for a moment, just for a little while, and I'm just going to try and get that fed in some other way in my life. I'm going to pursue my career more than I pursue God. I'm going to pursue finances or, or a relationship or whatever it is. Feed my ego. Get on Instagram. Whatever it is. I want to just, just for a while go into that life. And so the story really starts there and says, here's what happens in a granular sense when we start to take a step away from the place of bread. And this is what begins to happen in people's lives. So they left what was their place of inheritance. They could and they should, according to all their um, traditions of the day and the word of God that they had, stayed where they were. And so they take their sons into Moab. Mo the Moabites were their historic enemies. So they've gone there because they think even in that place where the ambitions are different, the, the, the idols were not godly, um, we're going to go and we're going to dwell in that place just because who's going to stop me? And so we're tempted, like them, to seek worldly solutions 
for what really is a need that we need to have met fundamentally with God. And so, as it is with them, a little while becomes a long while. A little while becomes a lifestyle. And it turns for these guys into a bitter experience. It turns into a, 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 a long season in their life where it just all went wrong. And by the time it's gone wrong, it's too late to say, I can't, I can't unravel this anymore. This thing can't be undone. So the sons marry Moabites because now they've gone through their teen years and now they're, they're wanting to get on with life. And so they marry whoever was around. And that was directly against the law. So they've now broken the law there. Um, but over a period of 10 years, uh, Elimelech dies and so does his sons. And obviously there was no welfare system back then. They had no land. They'd left their land. So now they're, now they're in real strife because the male was the, the provider, went out and, and, and did all the stuff and built the inheritance. But now these poor women are left and they're, and they're in real trouble, real trouble. So if we just zoom in there for a moment, we see this woman called Naomi. And this is really, I want to focus on Naomi as much as I want to focus on, on Ruth, even though the book's named after Ruth, because it was, it was Naomi's choices that, that catalyzed one of these great moments in Scripture. Because Naomi had this experience where she started on this journey in unbelief with her husband, and it evolved into this real bitterness with God. So there's been decisions made, and I, I, I want to exercise in you, I guess, a recognition of, the, of any bitterness that you have. Bitterness is poison. Bitterness is toxicity. Bitterness is judgment and a need for justice on your behalf. Bitterness poisons you. Bitterness tastes bad. It smells off. And, and we can have this bitterness sit in our heart. And so after these 10 years, Naomi's become bitter. She says, the Lord's hand has turned against me. The Lord has made my life very bitter. Can, can you see the conclusion? Unbelief has gone in, down this track, but her conclusion is the Lord has made my life bitter. Who made her self bitter? She did. Bitterness is a personal choice. It's completely separate from circumstance. Bitterness is my logic. Bitterness is my judgment. Bitterness is my heart can't, unable to grapple, unable to exercise faith, it's, it's thinking about God in wrong ways. It's just saying, this thing's turned toxic in me and I begin to judge God, just like I judge other people. And I become bitter with God. But it's not the hardship that makes us bitter. It's not God that makes us bitter. Bitterness is a manifestation of what I'm allowing to stir up in there. She's allowed herself through the, the door of unbelief go down this track to the point where she ends in this place of bitterness. But you can't blame God for the ways that we think. Because regardless of any circumstance, we all know people who in the, in the worst of circumstances find joy. But this thing of blaming God, this bitterness that we get, it's, it's a cul-de-sac in life. It's like we've gone down a road, we thought it was going to end somewhere, but we've found ourselves in a cul-de-sac. It's like there's no way out of this thing other than the way I came in. And the only way out of this cul-de-sac of bitterness in your life, because you'll stay there if you choose to for the rest of your days, because no one can get you out of that except God, uh, except yourself, I, I beg your pardon. Because you've got to unravel the logic that got you there. And the only way out is the way that you came in. And so we need to retrace our steps of logic and say, what, where has this bitterness come from? Where has this judgment come from? And so the reality for Naomi was she, she went down a path for a while, but the while turned into way too long. And she's ended up in this dark and lonely place and she's become bitter at God. 
and she's taken a path away from God's ways, and, and that's what, what this decision was. And I guess I just want to shine a light on that on, on all of us, because in our own dark moments, we can, we can say, God, why couldn't you have just, is it not too much to ask? Could you not have just done this or fixed my spouse? Because they're more broken than I am. How's this ever going to turn good? Could you not give me a better job than this? I had so much potential. Why have we ended up down this path? And we've got to shine a light on that and allow God just to come and grab you there and say, let's just pull you out of that place. I need to bring you home because you're dying in the cul-de-sac and it's not God's plan for you because his provision for your heart and his redemptive story doesn't end in your cul-de-sac. He wants to bring you out and take all that's gone wrong there and shine a light on it, put a hand of redemption on it and make that part of a whole other story, free of blame, free of bitterness that can change your life and change the world. And so this is exactly what begins to happen. I don't know whether Naomi got godly all of a sudden or whether it just ended up progressing that way. Some, I've seen both. Sometimes we just make the only decision that we have left. Sometimes we say, I need to do this because it's the right thing to do. But other times we just say, there's only one way left I'm going to go there. And it brings us end up colliding back with God again. And so Naomi indeed decides to head home. She decides it's just time. If I'm going to die, I might as well die in the land of my father's. And maybe her family will take her in. So her two daughters-in-law want to come along. They say, let, let me join you. And for a while, um, they walk until they, they're at the very border where they, if they go any further, they'll see Moab no more. And it picks up in verse 8 and says, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your, fa- your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, yet as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. And then we, we see this moment where it's almost like, when the bitterness is gone, when the worst of you has been boiled away, we come back to this irreducible core of the real you, of the you that can't be broken by the world, the, the, the you that's admirable, the you that's loyal, the you that's steadfast and says, I'm going to make a stand for something that really matters here. And you start to leak a different language. You stop the whining, you stop the complaining, you stop the agendas and you just go, I'm God's person. And I'm going to stick to the things that matter to me all my life. And I'm going back to those things. And this is sort of what's happening here. And she introduces a word that, that's new for the narrative now. So we've gone this far through the story. But now this new idea comes in. And this is why the book of Ruth is here. And this word, is, in that sentence, is translated as kindness. It's the word for love in the Hebrew, hesed. It's a whole other idea. It, the hesed love is translated many ways throughout the Old Testament. It's in there... Uh, four, no, 248 times in the end. Things like steadfast, slow to anger, redemptive, loyal, unending, unfleeting love. It becomes this defining element of Scripture's story that the steadfast love of God never, never ceases. And it's Naomi, of all people, who begins to unravel this. Steadfastness. In her darkest moment, in her weakest moment, she comes back to the steadfastness of love. Lamentations 3.22 talks about it. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Psalm 136 uses the word 26 times on its own. It just says we need to remember from this point, God's love never ends. No matter what's going on, He is steadfast. This is what love looks like. And then we see this beautiful moment where one of the daughters goes, yeah, okay, I'll head back. 
my best chances back with my parents. But the other one, Ruth, begins to reflect back. So this is a, a, a godless woman. Suddenly, the best of her comes out as well, and she's given a chance. And this is what happens when we speak the best of us into the lives of someone else. We start to speak faith. We start to speak hope and redemption and freedom. Suddenly, it brings out the best in other people as well, and it gets mirrored back to us in a better way. You look at verse 16. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. It's great for weddings, isn't it? But it's not what we're talking about. They're saying, this is woman to woman. This is human to human. Like it's soul to soul. So I'm done with everything else because nothing else really matters. It's just you and me, girl. We're just going to go. And if we die, we die together. And I'm going to die with you. Isn't it awesome? Just like, they know each other's not perfect, just like we know each other isn't perfect. But we see someone else in trouble and we just say, I'm locking arms with you because if you go down, I'm going with you. That's real relationship. And it's this declaration of a core value. Regardless of what life's going to bring, I'm living from love now. Paul reflected it in 1 Corinthians 13. He said, you know, if I gain the whole world and if I lose this, I've got nothing. I wonder if we can say that, guys. Can we just pause for a moment? And just reflect on that. Can we say that the same way Paul did? If I, if I had everything that I have, but I don't have hesed, love for someone else, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. Nothing. Have you got nothing or have you got everything else? I hope I'm not prodding too sharp, but someone's got to do it because this is what the Word of God is about here. It's saying, because we're in Kenmore now. We're in Brookie now. We're the blue-blooded wealthy ones that everybody wants to be you. Have you got all of it, but you've got Nothing. On your bad day, who's got your back? Do they really have your back? I hope they do. Because if they haven't, find someone and fight for it. Fight for it. At any cost. All the rest is going to get blown away. It's all essentially worthless. It doesn't matter how much you've achieved, how big that bank account is. I don't care how much Bitcoin you've got. I don't care how, how many network people you've got. I don't care how many followers you've got on Facebook. It's nothing, nothing, nada, yet. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. But how much of our life do we commit to it? Compared to this, where you go, I go. Sometimes we just get a chance in life to pay attention to the thing that matters. Sometimes we just get a moment to go, flip whatever language you would use there. This actually, this is actually legit. This is actually real. Sorry, can we cut that one out? <laughs> Professor Mitchell there said that's inappropriate. I'll live in inappropriate. It's all good. Okay, so this, it begins to turn around for Ruth in the story. It's a redeemed story. And so Ruth goes to glean wheat, uh, grain. She's hungry. She needs to do that. So in the rules of the day back then, um, the workers would be in the field and they would deliberately leave um, what was left over uh, for the poor and the aliens to come in and glean what they could and feed the poor. That was, that was the, uh, the way they did it back then. The, the estate that she found herself in was belonged to this guy called Boaz. Now, Boaz, interesting character. He's uh, apparently much older than, than young Ruth, and, um, but he's the son of Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho. So he understands messed up, right? His lineage was, was dodgy at best. And yet he's, he comes into this story uh, as the man of the hour. 
and he, he, he's heard the story about Ruth. He's heard what she's done, and he, he just thinks, that's a good human right there. I respect that. And he finds her in the field there, and he, and he says in chapter 2, verse 12, may the Lord repay you, he's talking to Ruth, for what you've done. Because he knows family matters. He, he knows people matter. Because he, he's got his own history he's had to deal with. So may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So he introduces now the second term, which is brand new, this whole idea of under whose wings. So throughout Scripture in the Old Testament, you'll see this saying, you come under the wings of someone else. And indeed, later on, when Ruth uh, is at the feet of Boaz sleeping for the night, she uses that same term, can you, can you put your blanket over me? It was an invitation to say, can I come under your wing? Can, can I come under your protection? And it, it's right away, it's, a, it's an illustration, it's a type of Christ right there. So Boaz becomes the illustration of Jesus here, saying, you're coming under the redemptive wings now. You know, I've, I've taken you in, you're an alien, you don't deserve to be here, but I'm taking you in under my protection. I've got you, God's got you, this story's going to be okay. And he begins this whole movement of redemption through being the type of Christ. So Ruth has had a good day. She, she goes, well, this has worked out pretty well. It, I'm, I'm not sure she's taken a shine to him. You don't normally work in the fields. Like, oh, I've got my sweaty clothes on and think this, this could become a thing. Um, ultimately, ultimately, it does. Um, let's not go, that's not necessarily the template we're looking for here. But she goes home and reports back to Naomi. Great day. Uh, tells the story of Boaz, and, and Naomi knows about this guy. She says, oh, the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He, he hasn't stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. In other words, this guy, he's been a consistently good character. And this man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. He's one of, and so she would have had to unwrap that. This guy is one of our kinsman redeemers, some of the other translations would say. In other words, the kinsman redeemer, what that meant back then was a relative. They had to be a male relative back then who helps a weaker relative who's in need. So they had the legal right in their system, if someone's lost everything, a kinsman redeemer can come in legally and say, I'm going to pay you back for that so it stays in their family line. So the property, the inheritance comes back. So he's, he's in a position to do that. He's not first in line. There's another guy in town who had probably more right to be able to take up that and do that for them. But in the end, as you read through the story, we see that Boaz does that. He, he does a bit of politicking and a bit of manoeuvring and, and he finds a way that he becomes the kinsman redeemer in that situation. But what's the point of all that? The point is not the romantic side. The point is that God offers to redeem your story too. He's saying, you now, as undeserving as we all are, as, as messed up as our story is, just like Ruth says, we've found ourselves by God's grace under his wing now. He's saying, guys, it's, it's time to come home. That mess, let's put it, all under his wing, because I want to bring you home. I want to bring you home into a whole new story, because redemption is going to look more and more profound than you could ever imagine. And this grace of Jesus Christ that's come into our humanity, in, in some ways like Boaz, born of a woman, born of God, the only one who could pay the price for our sin, he said, I'm going to pay that price for you. You're now under my wings. I've got you covered now. Let's come on this story together. And if, even if you've never known Christ before, that invitation stands out for you today to come under his wings because you'll never earn the right to be in God's presence through your own merit. But he says, I'm big enough for the whole thing. I'm going I'm to pay this price for you. Will you, by faith in what I've done, come under my wings, come under my protection? 
And so regardless of your situation, we get the moment now to put our trust in God. So I wonder where you find yourself in this story. It turns out really well for Ruth and, and for Boaz and for Naomi that she gets it all back and it doesn't necessarily always end in a happy story like that, but the redemption of the story always comes true. But I wonder where you see yourself. Normally when we read a story we, or we tell a story of our life, we become the hero in our own story, don't we? We're always sort of the good guy. We leave out the bits of the bad guy and, and, and we're the hero in there. But when you read this story of Elimelech and his sons and his wife, they've gone off track and it's lasted too long. Do you see yourself in that story anywhere? Do you see yourself in, in Ruth's position where who are these God people and I've lost my husband and it's all turning pear-shaped but the only thing that matters for me now is this one thing? I wonder if you've ever come to that point where you've realised none of it matters except a relationship with someone, a, a, a soulmate, someone that I can just spend my life loving in that deep friendship way, that mother-daughter-in-law way that they found. Because some of you here, I know the stories. Some of you have lost marriages, kids, businesses. Many of you here have lost your homeland. You've had, to, you've had to walk away from the whole thing. You've got relatives you haven't spoken to in decades. We've lost, haven't we? Eh? We've lost. So maybe that's you. Maybe you're the Elimelech who's made his questionable call. Maybe you're Naomi in this story where you've walked away from your inheritance and wondered if there's ever any way back. And God just says to you very clearly two words, come home, come home, just come home. It's not okay that, that it all happened, but it's okay. Things can be as they need to be. Come home because you're under my wings now and we can redeem this thing. Maybe you're Ruth. And in some ways, even guys, we're all Ruth in this story. Our only hope is Jesus. Our only hope is the protection and redemption of God. We all need to be saved in this way. But God takes these broken lives and he just weaves in a whole new story. This is what I love about this. Boaz came from a broken story, but then he ends up marrying Ruth. And out of that marriage, they become the great-grandparents of King David. Who'd have thought? Who'd have thought that? Ultimately, a Messiah comes from Ruth, a Moabite woman. Ultimately, we are all saved now because of the choices that she made. But your story is like that too. Who's to know? Ruth never knew. She probably never saw David, certainly didn't see Jesus. But who would have thought that her little choices that she made, the way this ended up in the redemption of so many. And your story can be the same too. What, what choices are you prepared to make so that God can make a wonderful story out of your story? Where you say, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to set aside the priority of, of everything else and I'm going I'm to focus on the one thing that matters, really. Well, there's really two, two things that matter. Faith in God right now, that I'm living from Him now. Faith in Him. Eternally, that's all that really matters. And then close second is people. That's what Jesus said, love God, love people. Where they go, you go. I wonder what you would do to, to, to commit to that and allow God to say, this is your story. Because when it's all said and done, when your grandchildren and your great-great-grandchildren are alive, what are they going to remember about you? If you become the director of the biggest company in the world, they probably won't remember that, much less care. They won't care how many facelifts you've, facelifts you've had or anything. They don't care how good you look, how wealthy you become. They might be thankful if you leave them a million dollars. At the end of the day, it won't matter. But the testimony that matters is my great-great-grandma, she had faith. 
She was a godly woman and she prayed. And I'm saved because she lived the life the way that she did. And I, I hear these testimonies you know, quite routinely and certainly read about them where, where kids recognise their grandparents or their parents, the life of faith that they lived. And that's the legacy, that's the story that they demonstrated with their life, this sacrifice and this love for other people. So little of what we do really matters compared to this. Where you go, I go. That's it. God wants to redeem your story, to make it way more than what would normally just impress you. The goals of your life to say, it'll be good when I've achieved this level, I've done this. Just wipe that again off off the shelf. So the only thing that matters is who's got your back and whose back have you got? Let's pray. Father, we come to you today thankful for redemption. Lord, whether we, we turn up here today and we're attractive or not so attractive, poor or rich, successful or unsuccessful by the world's standard, we realise that so little of that is of any measure in the kingdom. All that matters is faith and love. So Father, we pray you would show us how to do that, how to set aside with our priority that which doesn't matter and focus on that which does. And Lord, I want to pray now into the stories in this room, 120, 130 stories, cul-de-sacs that have been taken and backtracked on, decisions that have been made that we regret. Father, I think of the relationships that have been broken and the pain that we've suffered and the hurt, the things that should never have gone wrong, but just somehow have. Businesses that have been robbed, homes that you no longer own, relatives that you can no longer see. And I just want to recognise that pain. And we put a light on that pain and we don't reduce it because it's very, very real and it's part of your story. But I pray, Father, that you would put your hand on that pain and you would turn scars and bleeding into sacred wounds that become part of a redemptive story that qualify each one here to to redeem other lives because they've found a way to get through as well. And you've found a way, Lord, to bring faith and joy, not despite it, but, but through it. So Father, I pray you'd put your hand on every heart, on every story, and Lord, that you would redeem it. And Lord, you'd give us the faith and the hope to know that you have to rely on the fact that you have and that we can choose today to be thankful for who you are and what you've done. We thank you, Lord, for every breath that we can take. We thank you for every day that we get to do it again. We thank you that our life can have meaning, that today I can choose to encourage another soul, to reach out a hand and give you, as a sacrifice, Father, I can give you 10 or 15 minutes in this place right now and reach a hand out to somebody I don't know and say, can I hear your story? to give your life to someone else. Father, I just really pray for divine appointments as we leave this place. Thank you that you redeem us. Thank you that it all has a purpose to be found in you. Use every day, use every tear, every tear. Guys, I can can feel the tears. That God would use everyone to redeem your life and redeem someone else's. It's not wasted and it can be healed. And if you need prayer, you want the Lord's hand on your heart specifically, come and get some prayer after the service off to the left of stage. We want to pray into that. Bless you now. Let's worship.